Miss Ruby just came up to me and said, "You're out. I'm out one Sunday and you grow a beard. <laughs> I didn't tell her this, but the, re the reason I'm growing this is because I went to my wife about a week and a half ago and I said, sweetie, this is what I want for Christmas. And she laughed at me. So I said, okay, I'm not shaving until you acquiesce and you give me what I've asked for. <laughs> and, um, and so... Place your bets. I'm just joking there. What now? It's not that bad. It's not that bad. You know, every week we gather together and we gather together because we say that we believe this is God's word. We say we believe it's truth and it's relevant for our lives today. So I want us to take this book this morning. I want you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. The Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. When you find that, then I want you to turn over to the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be focusing on both of these passages this morning. So let me encourage you to mark your space in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Turn back to Ecclesiastes we're going to start in Ecclesiastes. We're going to make our way to 1 Timothy. And last week we began a, a two-part stewardship series that we've called Generations. It's a different kind of stewardship series, to be honest with you. And, and last week as we were unpacking a passage in the book of Psalms, we discovered that the reason that we give is so that future generations will know the truth. And the truth is Jesus Christ. Will place their confidence in the truth and will obey the truth. We don't give because what we get in return. We don't give for selfish reasons. We give so that those that come after us, those who have not yet heard about Jesus, those who have not yet received His grace and mercy can have the same opportunity that you and I have had. In reality, we give so that people that do not know the Lord can not only possibly, but will probably come to know the Lord. We give for that reason. But today I want to talk to you about what I believe is the, the reason that we don't give. Because I believe there's a reason that people don't give. And I, and I don't think it's because people in their hearts and minds have said that they don't want to give. I, I personally believe that most of us want to give. And I don't believe it's because we don't have the money to give, though that's what we may think. The reason I don't believe that is because statistics reveal that percentage-wise, the people who give the most are those who make the least. Now, chew on that for just a moment. You would think that as your income increases, not only would your amount of giving increase, but because you're blessed, you would give even a greater percentage because you have more left over to give. But the reality is that those who have lower incomes or moderate incomes, oftentimes percentage-wise, give much more to charitable causes, and especially to the cause of Christ. And so it's not because we don't have the money to give. So why is it that we don't give? Here's what I believe. We have been led to believe the money myths of the enemy rather than the timeless truths that come from God. We have bought into the lies that have been fostered by the enemy that have been continued by the enemy rather than believing the truth that is clearly revealed in God's Word. Now, hear my heart. When we hear these money myths, not only do we begin to believe them, but if we believe them, these money myths will cause us to make decisions, financial decisions, that not only are damaging, damaging to our family, damaging to our health, they are damaging to our souls, and they can literally destroy our lives. 
And so what I want to do this morning is talk to you about some money myths and some timeless truths. But before we begin to unpack this, I want to just share with you how we bought into these money myths. There's a book that has been written that's entitled The Day America Told the Truth. And it's written by James Patterson and Peter Kim. And in that book, one of the things that they revealed is some shocking statistics on how far people will go for money. They asked people this question, what would you be willing to do for $10 million? What would you be willing to do for $10 million? I want you to listen to this. 25% of those who were asked that question would abandon their entire family for $10 million. 23% said they would become prostitutes for a week or longer for $10 million. 16% said they would give up their American citizenship for $10 million. Six, uh, another 16% said they would leave their spouses for $10 million. This is shocking. 10% said they would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free for $10 million. 7%, 7 out of 100, said they would kill a stranger for $10 million. And 3% said they would put their children up for adoption. And I believe that figure is actually higher depending on the day that it was asked. <laughs> there, there are probably days when you ask me, would you give your children up for adoption for $10 million? I say, are you kidding? I'll pay you $10 million. <laughs> take them, take them. But it's amazing what people will do for money. Our pursuit of money destroys our lives, destroys our families, destroys our health, and destroys our souls. And so I want you to see from God's Word, not man's thoughts, man's ideas, but I want you to see from God's Word what are some money myths that destroy us and what are the timeless truths that can save us. Now, as we look at these money myths, I want you to—I want to share with you who we're getting these from. His, his name was Solomon. He, he was the wisest man who lived up in his day. He gave us the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And we are told he is the wealthiest man to live on the face of the earth up until his day. If you want to find out a little bit of how rich he was, you can look at 1 Kings chapter 10 and look at his portfolio or 2 Chronicles chapter 9. You're given a picture of his portfolio. I came across an article this week that was entitled, The Ten Richest People of All Time. And what they did is they took people who have lived throughout history and based upon um, inflation and all of those things. So everybody was, was on an equal scale. They determined who the richest people who ever lived were. The eighth richest person was Henry Ford. They said he was worth around $199 million. The fourth richest was Andrew Carnegie. He was worth around $310 billion. Number two was John D. Rockefeller. He was worth $633 billion. But this, this study said that the richest man who ever lived was Solomon. They estimated his portfolio to be worth over $1.2 trillion. The list include mullahs, it include czars, it include um, cons, it included people throughout history. And it said Solomon was the richest man who ever lived. So understand, when we listen to these things that Solomon is going to tell us, we're, we're not listening from someone who didn't make money. He made a lot of money. We're not listening to someone who didn't have money. He had more money than he could ever possibly spend. And yet, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5... He gives us five myths that I believe many of us and maybe most of us have come to believe when it comes to money. Now, in the book of Proverbs, Solomon gives us some practical helps for how to manage our money. But in Ecclesiastes, he opens up the door and says, here are the myths that people believe about money. So let me give them to you, first of all. Solomon said, myth number one is this, more money 
equals more happiness. The more money I have, the happier I am going to be. Now, the reason we believe this, though we will never say this, is because we believe that the things that money can buy is the source of our happiness. We believe that if I'm able to buy certain things and I'm able to have certain things and I need money to get those things, then once I get those things, I'm going to be happy. Solomon says, no, it's a myth. And a lot of people have said a lot of things about money and the pursuit of money. love what Jerry Seinfeld said. He said, dogs have no money. Isn't it amazing? They're broke their entire lives, but they get through. And then he said, you know why dogs have no money? No pockets. <laughs> Louis Armstrong said something that I think probably resonates with more people today. The famous jazz musician, he said, money can, can't buy you happiness, but it sure does quite your nerves. And there are a lot of people that believe that today. Lloyd Benson, who was the former Secretary of Treasury, said this about money. He said, money is not the key to life, but if you've got some, you can have a key made. And I think a lot of people believe that. But the one that shocked me the most was Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde said, when I was young, I thought that money was the most important thing in life. Now that I am old, I know it is. And that's the myth that many people have come to believe. If I have enough money, then everything else is going to take care of itself. I will find my happiness in that pot of gold that is at the end of the rainbow. As long as I get enough money, then I can be happy. So we spend our lives working and making money, but tragically... Our happiness never materializes. We get more and more things, and yet we discover that the problems, hear me, the problems that kept us from happiness in the first place are still with us. We may be able to go on elaborate vacations and live in nicer homes and eat at fancier restaurants and have more expensive toys, but even though we have all of these things, all of these things aren't making us happy. To be honest, Bob Marley was very close to the truth. Bob Marley said this, Money is numbers and numbers never end. If it takes money to be happy, your search for happiness will never end. Can I say that again? Money is numbers. Numbers never end. And if it takes money to make you happy... Your search for happiness is never going to end. Now, Benjamin Franklin said it a little bit more like maybe Solomon said it. Benjamin Franklin said this. He said, money will never make man happy. It never has, it never will. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more of it one has, the more one wants. Listen to what Solomon said in verse 10. He said, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings happiness. In other words, what Solomon is saying is that our yearnings will always increase with our earnings. That's just human nature. That's our sinful nature. The more we have, the more we are going to inevitably want. That's just the way we are. Case in point, there was a study done over the last decade that asked this question, how much money do you need to live the life you want to live? And what was amazing is they serve, surveyed people in every economic strata, from those who made 20-something thousand a year to those who made hundreds of thousands a year. And you know what every one of them said? It's amazing. The number that everyone gave, because they had to give a number, the number that everyone gave was roughly twice what they were presently making. So if I'm making $25,000 a year, the number was around 50000 The number, if you made 100000 was 190000 
And, and it just always was like that. It was about twice as much as you made. If I can just get this much, then I'm going to be able to do everything I need to do, everything I want to do. And Solomon says that's a lie from the pit of hell. It's not just true. It's not true. And so we spend our lives trying to make money because we think that if we make enough money, the things that our money is going to buy is going to make us happy, and it doesn't. Here's a man who who had well over $1 trillion, and he said, look at me, listen to my voice. It's not true, it's a lie. Now, in case you don't believe Solomon, what about Princeton University? 2010, Princeton University did a study, and the study was to try and correlate household income to happiness. In other words... Does household income have anything to do with happiness? You know what they found? They found out that making more money does make you happier, but only up until your basic needs are met. So in other words, if you literally can't afford to have a roof over your head, if you can't afford to eat a decent meal, then those things are going to affect your happiness, according to the survey from Princeton University. But then they found out anything over and above that has no payoffs in our day-to-day well-being or happiness. Did you get that? Once our basic needs are met, everything else really has nothing to do with whether we're happy or not. Now, there's another study that was even more amazing that took place several years before that one. And that study said that once your basic needs are met, more money actually competes with real happiness by getting you to focus your attention on illegitimate ways to happiness. Did you get that? And so once my basic needs are met, If I am focusing on having more and more and more, what that's really doing is it's keeping me from experiencing the happiness I could already have because I think that my happiness is somehow tied up with these other things, and it's not. And we bought into that as Americans. And we bought into it as American Christians. We have developed, we have, we have developed a love for money and a love for abundance. And yet Solomon says, take it from me. Money ain't going to make you happy. So believe him. He's speaking with authority. He's speaking from someone who knows. $1.2 trillion. I've got it. It's not going to make you happy. You're going to still want more. Here's myth number two. More money equals more peace. In other words, if I have more money, I'm not going to worry about things because my problems are going to be solved. My needs are going to be met. And and everything that is robbing me of peace that is causing me to worry will be a part of my distant past. Solomon says that's not the case. He said reality is quite different. Listen to what he says in verse 12. He says, those who work hard sleep in peace. It's not important if they eat little or much. In other words, it doesn't matter whether they have the resources to buy a lot of food, elaborate foods, tasty foods. It's irrelevant. Those who work hard sleep with peace. But then notice what he says. But rich people, they worry about their wealth. They cannot sleep. Solomon said, we we spend our lives climbing the corporate ladder and we climb the corporate ladder and we get the corporate job and we have the corporate success and we make the corporate pay. And what we didn't realize is we get the corporate stress to go along with it. And we thought that's what we were looking for, but then we are so tied up and all of the responsibilities we have that we are not able to enjoy the life that God has has given us. There was a study done by the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and they studied sleeping pill prescriptions. 
And this is what the CDC found. The number of prescriptions for sleeping pills go up significantly with age and education level. In other words, the more education that we have and the older we are, because most often we're further along in our career, the more responsibility we have in our jobs, the more and more trouble we have sleeping. Isn't that something? I mean, we first get married and... And we, we look at our sweetie. I mean, I can remember when my wife and I first got married. Made $198 a week. We gave $50 a week of it away. And I mean, we were trying to figure out how to live on a budget like that. And I mean, we literally, I kid you not, we've still got it. If you don't believe me, you say, Rocky, I don't believe you. Show it to me. I can show you from a composition book where we wrote down, okay, here's how much grits cost. How many meals can we get? Out of this box of grits. I mean we had it down. And it didn't work. But God provided. I mean here we were dirt poor. And you know when you're dirt poor. And you get married you say. All we got is love. And what's amazing is. You know oftentimes that's true. But you're happy aren't you. And then you get busy with life. And you get consumed in pursuing your careers and you have all of these responsibilities and you've got all of this money and you're miserable. I'm not talking about my wife and I. (laughs) The misery part. That's what happens. You see, all too often, the the thing that we think is going to cause us to have peace doesn't give us peace. Let me give you an example of why I believe this is so true. Back in the economic downturn, the Great Recession, this is what I discovered. People had low-paying jobs, moderate-paying jobs. They weren't worried about the economy. Now, you know, they didn't want to lose their jobs, and and I, I know some people, and I have some friends who lost their jobs, and then they got other jobs. But they weren't losing sleep over it. You know the people who were losing sleep over it? Those who had money tied up in the stocks. Those who had money tied up in Bank of America that was losing its shirt. <laughs> Things like that. Because all of this money that, that they had amassed was disappearing. What are we going to do now? You see, more money doesn't equal more peace. Sometimes quite the opposite is true. And then finally, money myth three. More money equals a better future. The more I have saved, the better I've prepared for the future, then the better off I'm going to be as I get into those twilight years. And let me say before I say anything else, the Bible speaks clearly about saving for the future and the wisdom, the benefit of that. But here's the thing. Everything that you spend a lifetime saving can disappear overnight, can it? I mean, you spend your life amassing this money so that you can retire with ease. And a recession takes place, a depression takes place, a a medical calamity hits your home. And all of a sudden, everything that you thought looked rosy doesn't look rosy anymore. And that's what Solomon said. Look at verses 13 through 15. He says, here is a terrible thing that I've seen in this world. People save up their money for a time when they may need it and then lose it all in some bad deal and end up with nothing left to pass on to their children. We leave this world just as we entered it with nothing. In spite of all of our work, there is nothing we can take with us. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon said it this way. He said, in the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. Bad investment, an economic downturn, medical calamity, everything is gone. Life's treasures, whatever they may be, are going to always be eaten away by inflation, depreciation, depression, recession, and a host of other things. And that's what Solomon is saying. So here's Solomon, a man who had everything that money could buy. He had money, so much of it, that he could use it as writing paper. And yet he said, money won't make you more happy. Stop the search. He said, money's not going to bring you peace. The reality is, it may rob you of your peace. 
And he said, money's not going to necessarily prepare you for the future because the truth of the matter is you don't know what the future holds. And so don't buy into the lie. Don't buy into the myth that thinking if you acquire more, if you accumulate more, you're going to have greater happiness and more peace and a better future because that's not necessarily the case. So what is the biblical truth? Well, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the amazing thing is that Paul gives us three truths that counteract the myths that Solomon told us about. Solomon gave us the myths, but he didn't tell us what the truth was. He told us some things later on in verses 19 and 20 of Ecclesiastes 5. But but the amazing thing is in 1 Timothy 6, Solomon counteracts each of the myths that Solomon gives us. So what are the timeless truths? Here's timeless truth number one. Contentment is what brings happiness. Longing for money will almost always lead to sin. I want you to listen to what Paul said in verses 6 through 10. He said, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now let's stop there for just a moment. Did you notice what he said? He said, godliness, don't miss that. And then he said, with contentment, don't miss that, equals great gain. Now that that phrase, great gain, is one Greek word. It is found only one other time in the New Testament. And surprisingly, it is found in the verse preceding this verse. It's found in verse Timothy 6, verse 5. I I want you to listen to what it says. And and to get the background, we really need to start in verse 3. So listen to what it says. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy and strife and malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of corrupt minds. Listen to what it says. Who have been robbed of the truth, and don't miss this, who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now, now the phrase great gain in verse 6 is the same Greek word for the phrase financial gain in verse 5. It's perismos, and it means to acquire. It needs to, to prepare for the future. And, and what, what he's saying is there are these groups of teachers out there who aren't really teachers at all, who are leading you to think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now let me say to you, there is an entire stream of Christianity that teaches that today. We call it the health and wealth gospel or the word of faith movement, a a term that is often used in there is name it and claim it. And what that means is you tell God what you want, you stake a claim on it, and it's yours. But Paul said that this group that teaches that in our generation today, they're no different than the false teachers in his day that were leading people astray because godliness isn't a means to financial gain. Paul says it's men of corrupt minds who have taught you that. That that word corrupt minds, it literally means rotten to the core. They have been robbed of the truth. Here's the problem. This teaching turns the truth of God's word upside down. It tells us that, that God is here to serve us. God put us here on this earth so that he could just give us everything that we need, kind of like this doting grandfather. That's why we're here. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches God isn't here to serve us. We're here to serve God. And we've turned it upside down. Life isn't about your happiness. It's about God's glory. And that's the only thing that matters in life, bringing glory to God. 
Now, is a lost person going to understand that? Absolutely not. But I'm at least expecting most of us in here not to be lost. And so we should understand it's not about us. It's not about our comfort and our happiness. It's about God's glory. And so that's what he says. It's not here. God's not here to serve us. We're here to serve God. Now, the truth is God does bless us. But those blessings come in a variety of ways, don't they? Those blessings could be a godly wife that stands by your side through thick and thin. Man, that's a blessing today, amen? Those blessings could be good health. Where you don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical bills over the course of your life. That could be blessing. I mean, there are a variety of ways that the blessings come. Blessing could be children. Who knows? One of those children may be rich and take care of you. You never know how those blessings are going to come. So when we think God's blessings mean that God's going to pour down money from heaven so that we get to go out and buy everything that we want, we've just missed it. Now go back to verse 6. Paul says, godliness with contentment. Godliness comes from a relationship with God, knowing Him, putting Him first in our life. That's what godliness is. Contentment is a byproduct of godliness. It comes from knowing God loves us. He's going to watch over us. He's going to meet our needs. And Paul is saying here, if you're trying to find contentment in anything, you're never going to have it. Because contentment doesn't come from things that money buys. Contentment comes from God. Let me give you some verses. We don't have time to unpack them. You can write them down there in the margin in your notes. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by the troubles of the world. Love what David said in Psalm 17, verse 15. He said, but as for me, my contentment is not in wealth, but in seeing you and knowing all is well between us. And when I awake in heaven, I will be fully satisfied for I will see you face to face. What does it take to make you happy? What does it take to give you contentment? Paul said it starts with a relationship with Jesus. But let's move on. Verses 7 and 8. You can put it back on the screen. It says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Paul defines what we should be content with. He says, if we have food and shelter, the basic needs of life, we should be content. Somewhere we've lost that. We've lost that. And in our search for the things that money can buy, the enemy has not just sidetracked us. He's derailed us. And he's caused our focus to be on things that it doesn't need to be on. But then he gives us a warning. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, people who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmless desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul's saying when we long for money, it doesn't bring gain. It, it actually can lead to our destruction. Now, don't miss what Paul's saying here. He says, people who want to get rich. That's their goal. That's their aim that's their desire in life Paul doesn't say people who are rich Paul isn't saying people who get rich he's saying people who are driven by these things you see sometimes riches are just a byproduct of life and there's nothing wrong with that but if riches are your pursuit Paul says there is a big problem with that the Bible calls it greed and materialism and the love for money. Now, let me make it clear. The Bible never says that money is evil. Money is passive. There have been some extremely wealthy people who are incredibly godly. And you see it in the way that they use their money. There's nothing wrong with money. Money is passive. It's what happens when it gets into our hands 
that make it good or bad. I've shared this with you before, but I think it's timeless. I want to share with you again. There's a book that was written in 1918. It was entitled Money, the Acid Test. It was written by a man named David McConey. And in that book, he said this. I want you to listen. Money molds people. Depending upon how it is handled, it proves a blessing or a curse to its possessor. Either the person becomes master of the money or the money becomes master of the person. And that's the problem all too often Money becomes the master. And Paul says that's dangerous. It can lead us into all temptations that become a trap. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves doing foolish and harmless things that can lead to our ruin and lead to our destruction. So what is Paul saying? He said, money doesn't bring happiness. No, godliness with contentment. That's what's going to make you happy. Godliness that leads you to be content with the basic needs being met. That's when you're going to be happy. Second timeless truth. Only God gives peace. Because of that, we need to place our trust in God, not in money. Listen to what he said in verse 17. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable that trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Paul says it's simple. Trust God. Don't trust money. Our bank accounts can be depleted. Our savings and retirement accounts can disappear. The fact of the matter is, is you have limited control at best over your money. And, and look at me for just a second. The, the truth is, you have no control over your money. You say, oh, yes, I do. No, you don't. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says it this way. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you don't believe it, look at Job. Satan came to God and said, you know, if, if you let me hold of Job, he won't love you like he loves you right now. God said, Job will love me. Go to it. And, and in, in, in a matter of days, Job lost his wealth. He lost his family. He lost his health. And yet at the end of it, he could say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But it doesn't end there. He said, blessed be the name of the Lord. How could he do that? Because he wasn't putting his trust in money or things. He was putting his trust in God. So have you trusted him? Are you trusting him? Now, if you said yes, I want you to pause for a moment and think. Because it's easy to say, I'm trusting him. But if you're really trusting him, then I encourage you to examine how you give. Because look at me. I want you looking away right here. Uh, if you're going to be mad at me, I want you to be mad at me looking at me. One of the primary indicators of whether you're really trusting God or not is how you're utilizing the moolah, the cash, the money, the resources that God has put in your hands. And if you say you trust God and yet you're not being obedient to God in the area of financial resources, then you're living a lie. And you've bought into a myth. And God's word is crystal clear in regard to how you and I need to look at money. Let me give you two things. In Proverbs 3 verses 9 and 10 it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. God said, I want you to give to me before you give to anybody else. That's what he said. I want you to give me the best and the first. I don't want you to pay all your bills and see what's left and then give me the tip. God said, no, I want the best and I want the first. That's what God says. Now, what makes this amazing? I want you to look at me. Because we read this and we go, well, that sounds good. I can give God before I give anything else. But what this said was that they gave their first crops to God. Now, let me ask you a question. Were they guaranteed a second crop? No. And so when they were giving their first fruits, their first crops to God, what were they saying? We are trusting you to provide for us. Wow. They were saying, we're not going to give to you after everything else has been done. We are trusting you. Because you're the giver of all good things. 
And then Malachi chapter 3. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. Pour out so many blessings on you, you will not have room for it. God clearly teaches that the tithe is the starting point. And, and if you want to debate that issue with me, I can do that with you. But we don't need to do that. I mean, the tithe is the starting point. The law, which is the tithe, never calls us to do what grace compels us to do. God's love for us will cause us to do more than God's law could ever command us to do. And we see that throughout Scripture. Read the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, you shall not. But I say unto you. And as you read that, you discover that Jesus took the law and said, but because of who I am and what I'm going to do in your life, you're going to take the law and you're going to take it further than you ever thought possible. That's what God's grace does. If you say, well, I want to be a grace giver, then read the story of the rich young ruler. Go sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, come follow me, and you'll have riches in heaven. If you say, I'm going to be a grace giver, then good, great. Go deplete your bank account, sell your house, do everything else. Give your money to ministries and missions that are ministering to people, and we'll see how the grace of God really has affected your life. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, notice what Paul says here. He said, when we do that, God gives us everything we need for our enjoyment. No, no, that's not saying, look at me, that's not saying that he's going to give us that, that, that big house and that fancy car and that, that nice boat and, and all of those things, though there's nothing wrong with those things. Look, there's nothing wrong if you have those things. Hear me. That's between you and God. But that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying you trust me and I'm going to give you all these things you need to enjoy life. He's saying you trust in me and you're going to find that I'm everything you want to enjoy life. It's kind of like what David said in Psalm 37, 4. Listen to what David said. He said, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, some people have twisted that verse and said, that means that if you delight in the Lord, then... You can ask for anything you want and God's going to give it to you. That's not what that says. What David says is you delight in the Lord. You long for the Lord. You pursue the Lord and he's going to do what? He's going to give you what you long for. If you delight in the Lord, he's going to give himself to you. That's what that verse says. Don't take it out of context. Don't make it mean something it doesn't mean. God's saying when you delight in me, you're going to have everything you need because I am everything you need. Because I will provide your every need. Third time is truth. Generosity. Creates a better future. First Timothy 6 verses 18 and 19. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly alive. Paul says we should use both our time <coughs> and our treasures to help others. And when we do, he says we're storing up treasures for all eternity. You see, it's only when we live a life of radical generosity in what we do and how we give that we're living life the way God intends us to live. And so the question I would ask you today is this. Are you generous with your time and with your treasure? The old saying is true. You can't take it with you. But here's the neat thing. You can send it on ahead because that's what he says. He says, when you're rich in good deeds and you're using your money to be generous, to help others, you are sending it ahead to build a foundation for you in heaven. You can send it ahead. You see, the only thing you're going to take with you is what you do for the kingdom of God and what you invest in the kingdom of God. And so as we close, what are you doing in those two areas? How you serve and how you give. Now, I, I want to speak to those who are just a couple of years older than I am. Because in 10 years, 
I can legally retire, 65 years old. I won't be able to financially retire. I owe the government still too much money, I think, because my, my portfolio seems to be going down rather than up. But I'll be able to retire at 65. And I hope when I get to that age and I get to that point where I am able to retire, if that's what God calls me to do. And some of you, by the way, when it said 10 years, we've got to put up with him for 10 years. I wanted more of a laugh than that. But and I get that sympathy last. But, but the point is this. I hope when I get to that point where God says it's time to move over and I have the resources to live on, I hope my health is good enough where I'm going to be able to use my health for His glory. You see, for you who are healthy and retired, you need to ask yourself, why do you think God put you at the place you are? Did He put you there so that you could spend days laying on the beach getting all wrinkled with skin cancer? Did He put you there so that you could spend your time basking in the beauty of the mountains, traveling the world? And again, hear me, there's nothing wrong with those things. But I just have a tendency to believe that God didn't leave you here to spend the rest of your life for that reason. I think maybe God freed you up time-wise and financially so that you could serve Him even more. I mean, isn't that a novel thought? That you're so in love with Jesus and, and He's blessed you in such a way and, and now you don't have to work to provide an income that now you can serve Him full-time? Without having to be paid? It's a novel idea, isn't it? You see, there may be some of you who God's saying to you right now, I want you to go on the mission field. And you go, how do I do that? You volunteer with the IMB and you can go for a two-year term on the mission field. You can minister to people in areas that don't know the name of Jesus. You can serve missionaries. You can do that with the IMB. You can do that with the North American Mission Board. There are things you can do. You can volunteer here. I mean, why waste our retirement getting tan when we could invest it for all eternity? And then our resources... As God does bless us in life, and we get to that point where our basic needs are met, and for most of us, much more than that, we have to begin asking these questions. When is enough enough? When is it time to start saying from here on out, everything else is being invested in the kingdom? Everything else is going to be used so that his name can be spread throughout the world. I mean, when do we get to that point? And I know that's counterintuitive and it's certainly countercultural because the culture doesn't tell us to do that. The culture says, you've worked hard for your money. Enjoy it. And yet, could God perhaps be saying to us, you did work hard. And I'm proud of you. But I'm the one that gave you the health and the intellect to make that money. And I gave it to you so that you could use it for my glory. What if? What if? We as the people of God begin to think in those terms when it came to our free time. And it came to our free resources? What if we begin to ask ourselves, how can this build the kingdom rather than how does it benefit me? What would it do? Would, would it allow us the resources to, to fund an army? Would it give us the people who, who are that army? Could it possibly do that? Confession time.
I struggle with what I'm saying as much or more than any of you. I grapple with these things. I wrestle with these things. But each of us should. Because in the end, everything that you see, you're going to leave behind. You're not going to take it with you. It's temporal. It's going to be destroyed when God makes everything new. So the question is, do we want to invest our time and resources in things that are going to be destroyed or in things that can stand the test of eternity? That's my question for you. Now, for you that aren't part of the Northside family, here's what I want to do. My question for you is, have you come to that point where you realize that that money... It's not going to give you happiness and satisfaction. It's not going to give you peace. It's not going to give you security. It's just not. Only Jesus can do that. And what I would say to you, if you're not a part of the Northside family, is my plea to you today is this. Just a moment, give your heart and life to Jesus. We're going to give you that opportunity. Because nothing else is really important. But you that are part of the Northside family, you've, you've covenanted You said to us, I want to change the world. And so what I ask you to do is ask yourself today, what kind of commitments are I, am I willing to make? What kind of commitments is my family willing to make this year as we prepare for the future to make a difference for the kingdom? And that's not only financial. The financial is just a small part of it. There's there's the, the evangelistic aspect. Am I going to invite people to church? Am I going to tell people the good news of the hope that I have in Jesus? There's the serving aspect. Am I going to use the gifts and the abilities that God has given me? The financial component is just one small piece. But but we need to ask ourselves, what are we willing to do? And, And then I'm asking you, I'm asking you, commit. If you're part of the Northside family, you received something in the mail about a month ago, three weeks ago. Part of it was a commitment card. On that commitment card, it had various kinds of commitments. We ask you to make those commitments prayerfully, led by the Spirit, to do what you know God's leading you to do. That's all we ask. So what I want you to do is I want you to bow your head, close your eyes, and I want to speak to those for just a moment who haven't accepted Jesus. Because that's the most important thing. If you're here and that's where you are and and you've come to that point where you're willing to turn it all over to him, then I want to encourage you to pray this prayer to him right now where you are. Dear Jesus, I come to you this morning knowing that I need you. I am a sinner and I'm never going to be good enough to save myself. I believe you love me so much You died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe you were so powerful that you defeated sin and Satan and death by being resurrected from the grave. And because of that, you have the power to save me and change me. And I'm asking you to do that, Lord Jesus, today. Come into my heart and take control. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me brand new Today, amen.